Now we are in session 10 overall, but the second session comparing the founders. In this one, I'd like to go a little slower, so go with me as we take the steps. I asked this question and I'm going to read it out to you. How did your life, Mr. Founder, match with your own teachings? Did you provide the message in word only or in actual practice in life? You wanted the people to bring their behavior and practice into line with your teachings. Did you do that yourself? That is the question. And I consider this to be a true acid test of your claims. So, you know, what I was trying to do was check and see whether the meaning of what they were saying was not only in their words, but actually in their lives. I really felt this was a true test to these founders. Now, because I'm trying to look for faults, it will be a little negative in that sense. I don't mean to put any of the religions down. I do not mean to say that the doctrines and philosophies are false or negative or bad. What I mean to say is that we are asking a very specific question and because of the nature of the question, I had to look for the faults in each of the founders. So I had to comb through their writings to do that. And I don't mean, once again, I do not mean to put you down, you, the other religions. I just mean to ask this question as an inquirer. So join me in asking this question. Mr. Founder, did your life match your own teachings? Here's Hinduism. When a man gives up all varieties of desire for sense gratification, then he is said to be in pure transcendental consciousness. A person who is not disturbed by the incessant flow of desires can alone achieve peace. These words, sense gratification and flow of desires, actually mean sensuality and sex. If you read all these religious writings, invariably, sometimes quite explicitly, they do describe that. And that is because it is understood even from the truth of each religion, that this question of sensuality and sexuality is a big part of our lives. Nobody escapes that. But what they do say is that no matter how powerful the effects of that part of our lives, we must not let it dominate. In other words, there's, it's there for a good reason, but if it gets to be too much, then we cannot carry on the true path that the founders are trying to describe for us. In other words, yes, it is there, but do not let it dominate. Now, with that in mind, let's see what the words are in the description of some of the Hindus. Here is what Gautam Buddha said as a Hindu, when he was a Hindu. Our holy books tell us of gods, sages and heroes who, though high-minded, were addicted to sensuous passions. Now, that is quite a confession to make. And it is in writing. They were addicted. Not only did they indulge, but they were addicted to it. Do you know one of the glaring examples of this, of going against this teaching, that you must not let it dominate, keep it down to its place? is in the life of Krishna, 
who is the eighth incarnate of the god Vishnu. And in some circles, he is called the supreme personality of the Godhead. Now, in his life, in the traditional writings, they describe him as being playful. But the word playful does not really depict the true picture. When you read what really happens, it is a, 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 a picture that is questionable. You see, he grew up in the place called Vrindavana and his companions were only girl cowherds called gopis. He was the only guy. And he used to play his flute beautifully. So in his, in his treatment of the girls and his behavior with the girls, he would play the flute and the traditional writings say that he would seduce them. That is not a good picture. He's described, yes, playful, but the playfulness was not really all that innocent. There was a time when the girls had gone for a bath to the river. He went there and picked all their clothes and climbed up a tree. And he said, if anybody wants your clothes, come and get them from me one by one. Whoa, that's not a good picture. He also had his favorite one called Radha. And here is what a traditional writing says. When Ayana Gosha, who is the husband of Radha, heard of Radha's adultery, he went in search of the couple. So who is Radha with? Krishna. However, Krishna assumed the form of a goddess and they thereby escaped Ayana Gosha's wrath. There are multiple such stories of his behavior. In fact, during a royal meeting of opposing forces, in those days they would meet together before the war and chide each other and challenge each other. During one of those royal meetings, Sisupala, one of the opposing princes, turned to him and chided him, chided Krishna for his behavior with women, for taking their clothes. Why? Because that was part of the story that was spread about. So. He really did not keep up to that strong teaching that you have to push it aside so that you can be in pure transcendental consciousness. In some traditional writings, he is claimed to have had 16,000 wives. Now, even if this number is only figurative, it does confess to his way of life. He is said to have fathered 180,000 sons. That is not in line with the principle of abstaining from sensual activities so that you can have the mind focused only on transcendental meditation. So it doesn't look like the life had come up to the teachings in real practice. How about Buddhism? Gautama Buddha said these words, Here, venerable gentlemen, are the four rules about the offenses which deserve expulsion, expulsion from the monastery. Number one, if a monk should have sexual intercourse with anyone. The other rules were if you stole or if you murdered or if you claimed to have supernatural powers when you didn't, then these four rules would cause expulsion from the monastery. So the first one was no sex. But how about him and his own life? The fact is he was married and he did have a son. So he did have sex. The other story is really in the traditional writings. You see, his father was a king. His name was Sudhodana. His mother was a queen. So he was a prince. When he was to be born, a prophet 
from the foothills of the Himalayas, his name was Asita, came to the father and said, you're going to have a son and uh, your son will either be a great world emperor and ruler or he will leave town and go into the world looking for light, half clad, naked, in an ascetic life. Which one would you like? Well, the father said, I want him to be a prince and a king and an emperor. Well, Asita then told him, on this condition, he might become a world emperor. If you make sure that he does not set his eyes on old age, disease, suffering or death. So the father, King Sudhodana, took up the challenge. He built palaces, different palaces, in which he placed Gautama Buddha at that time, his name was Siddhartha, the son, and he let, did not let him come down to the palace grounds or to the town because he might set his eyes on those forbidden things. So from the age of 16 to the age of 29, he was kept on the upper stories of the palaces, never allowed to come down. Now, how do you think they kept him busy and entertained out there? Well, we don't have to guess. The writings say this. He was kept busy up there, entertained with women minstrels. They entertained him with wanton swayings, butterfly kisses and seductive glances. Thus he became a captive of these women who were well versed in the subject of sensuous enjoyment and indefatigable in sexual pleasure. For how long? Day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, for 13 years. This was the story that was going on. And that's why in later years when he was looking for light, by the way at the age of 29, he left that, walked out into the wilderness looking for light, exactly as the prophet had said. So this is what he said while he was looking for light. In fulfillment of my vows, I have plucked out the hair of my head and the hair of my beard, have gone down to the water punctually thrice before nightfall to wash away the evil within. I didn't use the word evil. It is right there in the writings. And if he had to go punctually, three times a day, to wash away the evil, then that evil must have been a certain good amount. You wash it once, still there. Wash it again, it's still there, three times a day. In other words, it permeated his life. And what was most of the evil? We don't know, but certainly it was the question of having sex. Because that was his story for all those years. 13 years. So really, when you look at the story and at the teaching, the life story is not matching with the teaching. So even Gautama Buddha does not seem to have fulfilled his own teachings in his life. How about Islam, the story of Muhammad? Now, Muhammad is considered to be the perfect man. And in traditional Islamic circles, they do accept him as that, and I think we should accept him. But look at what the Quran says. For example, in chapter 4, Then you may marry other women who seem good to you, two, three, or four of them. Muhammad had two basic parts of his life. One was in Mecca, and the next half was in Medina. In Mecca, he had only one wife. In Medina, when he went, he had shifted out from being not just a messenger of God, but to be a statesman, a general in his army. Now he had power, a different kind of power, and he wanted to maybe make alliances, so he had so many wives. Here it says four, 
it is said in his in the writings that he had anywhere from 11 to even 19 wives so he really didn't match this teaching how about the next verse it's found in chapter 48 we allah have given you muhammad a glorious victory so that allah god may forgive your past and future sins and in chapter 93 did he allah not find you muhammad in error and guide you so we acknowledge that muhammad was the perfect man but the perfection in islamic tradition still allows sins and errors so yes perfect good but really you cannot be an example if you have exceptions like the exception was given to him to marry more than four so either example or exception not both so did Muhammad keep up to the teachings well to a good extent but still they were false how about Judaism the words here are thou shalt not kill thou shalt not commit adultery thou shalt not bear false witness let's look at the three Hebrew greats Abraham Moses and David here's Moses so he looked this way and that way and when he saw no one he killed him and hid him in the sand what's that murder and the story of Abraham, so he went, went into Hagar and she conceived. He had sex with Hagar. Hagar was not his wife, so that's adultery. And then when he goes to the neighboring town, he tells the king that his wife, Sarah, is his, actually his sister. Well, that was a lie. So this big towering prophet still indulged in falsehood as well. How about David? The words are, David sent messengers and took her. Who is her? Bathsheba. Bathsheba was not his wife, that's committing adultery. And then to cover up his actions, he takes this husband, who's a member of his army, sends him into battle specifically to be killed. It says, set Uriah the husband in the forefront of the hottest battle and retreat from him that he may be struck down and die. Cold-blooded murder. So no Hebrew great ever came up to the top of the teachings that they themselves claimed and proclaimed. Then we come to Christianity. Jesus was accused of the sin of blasphemy. Here are the words. Then the Jews took up stones to stone him for blasphemy. And this is what they, why they wanted to stone him. Because you being a man make yourself God. So the question is, did he break the law? The Jews said so. But the writings of John actually claim the opposite. They say that he was God. So if he was God, it was not blasphemy. In fact, John says in John 1.1, the word that is Jesus was God. And thus the writings on which we base our assessment, they stand by him, even though he was accused. So the accusation was there but it was not upheld in the writings themselves. So we've set aside the question of blasphemy. He was accused, but it was not sustained in the writings. And now we go to 12 statements in the writings and let us see how they pan out. Here is the first statement by Pilate. Now Pilate was a Roman governor. Romans and Jews were not exactly friends. In fact, they hated one another with a passion. And yet, this is what Pilate, a Roman, a Roman governor, is talking about Jew, Jesus. 
and indeed having examined him in your presence, I have found no fault in this man. And in the book of John it says, I find no fault in him at all. And then he endorses that and quotes Herod by saying Herod also found no fault because he sent him back. So these two were the first in our list. Number three, Pilate's wife. During the trial, she sent a note to Pilate. She said, watch what you are doing about this man who is in your, in your court. I have heard about him and in fact, I saw in a dream, this man is a just man. The word just means good, blameless. Number four, the Roman centurion. These hardened soldiers knew what criminals looked like and he was in charge of the crucifixion. And when he saw the way Jesus behaved, his words, his whole misdeem, his uh, demeanor, boy, this was different. And so at the point of his death, when he saw how he died and what happened around him, these are his words. Certainly, this was a righteous man. The thief on the cross. Jesus was crucified between two thieves. One of them turned to Jesus and said, Hey, if you are the son of God and you are a Messiah and, a big, uh, and have a tremendous power and energy, uh, and authority, why don't you come out down from the cross and also take us down? The other thief turned to him and chided him and said, Look, you and I are dying here crucified because of what we did, which was wrong and evil. And then he says these words, But this man, pointing to Jesus, has done nothing wrong. Now all these five saw him from a distance. So from a distance, well, yeah, he appears to be okay. What about those who were close to Jesus? You know, there's a tradition in the East between the rabbi and his follower who was called a Talmudin. And in India, we have the guru and the follower is called a shishya. The relationship is very strong and peculiar. The Talmudin, the follower of a rabbi, has to leave home to follow the master. Why? Because he must follow him to the extent of becoming like him. And here's one of the prayers that the parents prayed over the son who was now going to be a follower of this rabbi. It was a great honor to the family if a rabbi came by and, say, came by and said, I'd like your son to be a follower of mine. So this is the prayer they would say, May the dust of your rabbi cover your garments. The dust coming from his sandals cover your garment. What's the meaning? May you follow so closely your rabbi that in the end you will be like your rabbi. Go close to him. The sandals dust that throws up must come onto your garment. In other words, watch him. As he speaks, so should you speak. As he walks, you will walk. As he eats, you will eat. Compare, copy him with all, in all his mannerisms and all his teachings and all his philosophies. In other words, be close to him at all times. Jesus had rabbis, as a rabbi had Talmudin. And they followed him day after day. So here's one of them. 
John, who watched Jesus. Now, John obviously wants to be like Jesus. So he watched him from morning till evening, day after day, week after week, month after month, three, year after year, for three and a half years, continuously. And at the end of those, uh, that continuous close observation, here is his assessment. In him, there is no sin. How about Peter, another Talmudin, another follower? He says, Christ without blemish and without spot. Disciple, another one, Paul. He was in all points tempted as we are and yet without sin. Can you see a tendency with all these people? They seem to be looking at him, examining him and not really finding that which discredits him. Well, these uh, disciples were his good ones. How about a disloyal disciple? Judas. He had betrayed him. And then when he realized his mistake, he went back to the priests and he threw the money back at them and said, No, I don't want this money because it is I who have sinned. I have betrayed this man who is innocent. He used the words innocent blood, meaning this man was innocent. So we have nine stating the same thing. The tenth one is quite peculiar and quite powerful. Jesus is the only founder of a major religion who is referenced in the writings of another major religion. He is referenced 90 times and more in the Holy Quran, the book of, the, of, of Islam. 16 times he is identified by his mother's name. In those days, it is usually your father's name, son of so-and-so. But here, Jesus, and in his day also was called Jesus, the son of Mary. And in the Quran, it says, Isa bin Maryam, more than 16 times. Jesus, the son of Mary. And more than 10 times, he is given the title Al-Masih, the Messiah in the Quran. And here are the words, in the Quran about the life of Jesus. In chapter 3 and verse 46, it says, He shall lead a righteous life. And the one who spoke to his mother, the angel, described his life, holy and blameless son. Remember, this is the same Quran that acknowledged that, Jesus, uh, that Muhammad did have sins and errors. And here the same Quran is saying that he is, a, he is a righteous life, blameless son. How about his own conscience? Now, how many of us, you and I, can look into our lives and say, everything is fine, we never made a mistake in our lives. Nobody can say that. But he, there was a time when Jesus faced his bitterest critics, those who were thirsting for his life. And he turned to them and said, which of you, Shows, can show one sin in my life. The words actually, which of you convicts me of sin? In other words, can you prove sin in me? Do you know what the response was? Silence. Now look through history. How many public figures can you find who would look at their bitterest enemies who are thirsting for their death and challenges them to find one mistake and, the, and their response is silence. I believe you will not find any. On the screen is the word Kung Shu. That's his Chinese name. His Western name is Confucius. Now, if you know anything about Confucius, 
He was a wonderful man, generous, benevolent, loving, kind, and everything that goes to make a person wonderful. And yet, look at his own words. How dare I claim to be a sage or a benevolent man? So even Confucius agreed that he was not up to the mark. But when you look then at Jesus, who said, there seems to be nothing in my life, in my whole conscience. It's amazing. Number 12, in the Sanhedrin, they asked him this question. Are you then the son of God? And they put him to death with that question. Now, in a trial, you don't put them to death who claim because of their claim as to who they are. You put them to death because of what they did or did not do. Now, in that trial, they did bring witnesses over and over. and They could not find any reason to put him to death, could not find a fault. So the chief priest shifted out the question from what did you do or what did you not do to who are you? That shift tells me that his life was perfect. What he did, what he did not do, met the highest standard. In other words, 15 million minutes of life on this earth, in the midst of a wicked and corrupt generation, every thought, every deed, every purpose, every work, privately and publicly, from the time he opened his baby eyes until he expired on the cross, were all approved of God. Never once did our Lord have to confess any sin, for he had no sin. He alone carried the spotless purity of childhood untarnished through youth and manhood. Christ's self-conscious purity is astonishing. Sinless perfection, perfect sinlessness is what we would expect of God incarnate. And this we find in Jesus, the hypothesis and the facts concur. In other words, what we would expect is what we find. Amazing. Now look at the consistency of his life. He said he was God. And when he came down from being God, he said, I bring the message in myself. I am the message. If he came from there, of course, he would be the message. And if he really was the message, then we should expect that that life would be permeated by the message to the extent that there would be no mistake at all. And that's exactly what we find here. God incarnate, bringing the message in himself so that he himself is the message and living it out to perfection. An amazing record. Is that another red marble? If you have enjoyed this presentation with Dr. Subodh Pandit and wish to watch more of this unique 13-part series for free online, visit the website godfactorfiction.com. That's godfactorfiction.com. If you would like to order this fascinating series on DVD, it is now available from Whitehorse Media. To order from within the U.S., call 1-800-782-4253. Dr. Subodh Pandit has written two eye-opening books entitled, Come Search With Me, Does God Really Exist? and Come Search With Me, The Weight of Evidence, which further explore the topics of evolution, theism, atheism, and religion. To order these books from within the U.S., call 1-800-782-4253. That's 1-800-782-4253. If you live outside the U.S., you may also easily order them on Amazon.com.